Please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, our text is going to be verses 1 to 7 of God's holy word. And though it is Mother's Day, and oftentimes you do a Mother's Day sermon, uh, when we were going through Titus, just so no one gets upset, we were going through Titus and we did cover older women, younger women, so it was just a little preemptive. (laughs) So here in Romans chapter 1, our text is verses 1 to 7. We are finally starting in the book of Romans. This is one of the uh, beloved books of the New Testament. You know, often when people are converted, at least what I've understood uh, with my own self, is that when people are converted, the two main books that we usually send believers to, new believers, is the Gospel of John and Romans. Uh, There is so much theology that is packed into this particular book, and it is just so rich in all that, that, uh, that Paul teaches on the work of Christ and everything that he accomplished and all the blessings that come to the people of God. I mean, he covers so many things within this, this book. You cover justification by faith, even the effectual calling, of course. You cover the doctrine of election, of sanctification, of perseverance, of the life of a believer thereafter. There is so much that is contained here. And I thought about whether or not to give the John Piper speech Uh, before we begin this book, just as he had given his congregation when they started in the book of Romans, he said to them, some of you will not live to get through this book. (laughs) But we have a little bit more hope, I guess. (laughs) Maybe it won't take us quite as long. (laughs) No, but this is, of course, one of the um, beloved books in the New Testament. Uh, again, because there's so much theology that is here. You know, when you read the Gospels, the Gospels are giving us the, the, of the life of our Lord, the ministry of our Lord, the redemption that he accomplished, his, his identity, all of that. And really, when you get into the New Testament epistles, especially with the book of Romans, that you have the implications of everything that we read of within the Gospels. Now we're getting the implications of it all in clarifying uh, some of the doctrinal teachings of what Christ has accomplished. So there is much here. There is, um, again, it is just so rich in theology. And, of course, if you've read through Romans, you already know the wonderful things that we will uh, come, come by when we uh, get into the bulk of this book. So this morning, we are really going into the introduction of the book of Romans. But... Even though it is an introduction by Paul, and it is actually one of the longer introductions that he gives as far as his salutation, as he introduces himself in this, in this book, there is also by the Apostle Paul a great emphasis on really the content of the rest of the book. Because he lays out in these first couple of verses the gospel. Because this is going to be the content of it all. It is going to be the gospel of our Lord Jesus, not only uh, defining the gospel for us, because we're going to see that the gospel itself, the sum total of the gospel is Christ. It's all Christ, who he is, everything he accomplished. It's all him and the result of the work of our Lord Jesus just in these first seven verses. This is is very, very important for us to get uh, as we begin into this book. We want to have a solid foundation, of, an understanding of the gospel, to be reminded of the gospel. And again, as Paul will say even later in this first chapter, that he's going to preach the gospel to these saints who are at Rome, even though they're already converted. Because the gospel is not just for the unbelieving, the gospel is for the believing. It is a reminder of what God has accomplished on our behalf through his Son, And so it is for us. It is something that we need to give our attention to, be reminded of the the clarity of the gospel, the content of the gospel, be appreciative of what God has brought about in Christ in order that we would try to strive to live in a manner that is pleasing to our Lord. And so in our text today, 
the apostle is going to clarify what the gospel is. He's going to show its agreement within the Old Testament scriptures. And this is very important, too, because there seems to be a a belief within the, the, the church that you have to put this big wedge in between the Old Testament and the New rather than seeing the continuity of the Old to the New. And we need to see that in the apostle establishes that also at the beginning. And then the great benefit that the gospel produces within the people of God. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you that through the scripture we can truly come to know who you are and what you have accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the time that we have in studying this together And I pray, Father, that as we work our way through this passage and through the book as a whole, that you would do a mighty work within our hearts, changing us, shaping us, and molding us to be all that you desire. Father, let our hearts be encouraged this morning as we work our way through this text. To you be the praise, the glory, the honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. Again, this is an introduction into this book. This is one of the longest letters of the Apostle Paul. And it's probably one that has the most complete expression of his theology, of the theology of Scripture. He's actually writing to a church that he did not establish. Now, church tradition usually connects the Church of Rome to the Apostle Peter and to Paul. But we don't read in anywhere in the scripture that Paul was the one who established this church. Uh, neither do we read of Peter being the one who established this church. It is very possible, though, that on the day of Pentecost, when you had all the Jews from all over the empire coming for the day of Pentecost, is that some that were converted on that day probably were from Rome. And so they took the gospel back with them to Rome, to their synagogues, and established a church there. That is very possible, and it seems very likely. So as Paul is beginning his letter to a church that he did not establish, a church that he never met, he's, he's establishing his identity as to who he is. No doubt they probably heard of him, but sometimes there's a need to separate fact from fiction. And maybe the Apostle Paul is, is writing, and he is putting this long introduction here to establish who he is, and that he is called to be an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that his theology is orthodox. So he's probably writing around 57 AD. This may have been during his time in which he was staying in Corinth, according to Acts chapter 18, or even his three-month stay in Greece, according to Acts chapter 20. But in any event, he had time to pen this letter, and he is making plans to come to the church at Rome as he is going on his way to Spain. There is a belief, too, that as the apostle is writing to this church, as it's going to be on his way to Spain to to spread the gospel there, that he is seeking to establish a unity between himself and this church in order that perhaps they, too, would take part in supporting his mission to Spain. As he says uh, in verse 13, that uh, so far that I may obtain some fruit among you also even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Perhaps that is in reference to that, of coming alongside him 
and helping to support him in the mission to Spain. So in establishing first who he is, very common introduction by the Apostle Paul, one that we've been over recently as uh, we work through the epistle to Titus, that Paul is identifying himself as a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He's a slave of Christ Jesus. He's not representing himself. A slave is under his master, all about his master's business. He doesn't have his own agenda, but he is committed to the Lord Jesus and his agenda. He is, his status as a servant or as a slave is really qualified by the next two statements that he makes. That one, he is called as an apostle. That means one who is sent. He was directly commissioned by our Lord Jesus to be an apostle to the nations. You read of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. He is one who comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's set apart for the gospel of God. Even the apostle says even from his mother's womb he was set apart in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15. And so this is really a demonstration of the sovereignty of God not only to already plan out the apostle Paul's life as to what he is going to do, but all the training that the apostle had leading up to his conversion is all going to come into play whenever he is going out to preach the gospel. He was set apart for this task. He was set apart from his mother's womb for this very uh, task that our Lord had given to him. And all his training is going to be seen in everything that he is really going to pen in this particular book. So he says that he is called as an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's been set apart for the gospel of God. Now, he is going to define the gospel through the, the next couple of statements that he is making, but he's really giving us the content of what the gospel is. You know, often, especially during times of evangelism and going out and sharing uh, the gospel, or that's what we're supposed to be doing, sharing the gospel, when we go and we talk to people, we often give them our testimony. Our Lord has done this for me, and he saved me. Or we invite them to church. Come with us, join us one Sunday, uh, etc. But neither of these is the gospel. Neither of these is sharing the gospel. The gospel, though the gospel has a great impact on our life in which we can share our testimony with others that God has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. As the, the psalmist says, he brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet on a rock and established my goings. We all have a testimony to, to tell. Absolutely. But that's not the sum of the gospel. That's not the content of the gospel. The good news, and it's not just any good news, it's the good news of God. The good news is Christ. He's the good news. His person, his work, everything that he is, everything that he done, everything that he said, all of this is the good news. And that's where we, we maybe get some confusion at times. When you go and you tell people your testimony, you, you invite them to church, those things are good. But that's not sharing the gospel. Unless you're telling these folks Jesus died for sinners, then we're not giving them the gospel. Christ is the good news. He's identified here as the Son of God, our Lord. His humanity, not only His divinity being the Son of God, our Lord, which, Lord, in the New Testament, that Greek word kurios is the equivalent of the Old Testament word Adonai, which is the master, the sovereign. Not only is He the master and the sovereign, He's the Son of God, meaning of the order of God. He has an equality with God, emphasizing His deity, but it also, He also emphasizes His humanity. That He was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. That Christ himself is not just a divine being who inhabited a body, but he is the one God-man. In which when he became flesh, he adds humanity to his being so that he is truly God, he is truly man. And as many of the confessions throughout church history, like the Chalcedonian Confession, describe that these two natures, his human nature and his divine nature, are united together, but they're not confused, they're not intermingled. You don't have some hybrid that has come about here. Each retains its specific property, but it makes up the one man, Jesus Christ. 
And the apostle is establishing that. He's the son of God. He's the Lord. He came in the flesh. He establishes his resurrection of the dead. And as the apostle Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, then your faith is in vain. Christ himself, who he is, that is, that is the good news. That though man could not carry out what God demands, because God demands absolute perfection. We have to understand that. God demands absolute perfection if you are to come into his presence. And the good news, in light of the bad being that we can't do it, the good news is, is that the second person of the triune Godhead took human flesh in order to carry out what man couldn't do. It was necessary that he come in the flesh, not just appear as a phantom as some of the Gnostics believe, perhaps, that he really wasn't flesh, any of this, or that he was raised spiritually from the dead. No, he came in the flesh, he was raised again in a physical glorified body, demonstrating his authority over death, and through his resurrection, his bodily resurrection, that gives those that are in him the promise of a resurrection as well. The resurrection is necessary. It's through him coming as a man. And understand the importance of that. He came as a man. Again, he's not a hybrid. He's not some weird mixture of God and man. He's not what the ancients would refer to as a demigod or any kind of nonsense like that. He is truly God he is truly man. He came in the flesh so that everything that he done, he was a true substitute for man. In order to bring peace between two parties, you have to be a perfect representative of both. And so in order to join God and man together, he had to be truly God and truly man. To be the only mediator between God and man. It was absolutely necessary that he come in the flesh and that he was raised. Disarming all the principalities and powers, he made an open show of them as he triumphed over them. As he conquers death, enduring the wrath of God and in place of believers, he satisfies the justice of God against us. And then he's raised again, being vindicated to be who he claimed to be. And as a result of what he has accomplished, as he gave his life on behalf of sinners, only through him is grace extended to the people of God. Through whom we have received grace, he says. The unmerited favor of God. How did that come about? Was it just because Christ made a way for us to be able to come to God if we choose. Because that's an important factor in this. What, what is grace? When we talk about grace, we're not just talking about he made a way so that if you, the sinner, decide to, you may activate that salvation and come to him. No, grace is much more than that. Grace is God directly saying to you, I'm going to extend something to you personally that you do not deserve. And this is what you don't deserve. You don't deserve to come into my presence because you're in rebellion. You're a sinner. And yet on behalf of my son and through him, I'm going to bring you to me. If God is obligated to give grace to everybody, then it's not grace. It's an obligation on God's part. He has to meet a condition. The condition is you're human, apparently, and all humans deserve grace. Well, that's not true. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. It has nothing to do with fairness. Fairness is everybody gets the justice of God. That's fair. Grace has nothing to do with fairness. We have received grace in him. He died a real death for sin for those whom the Father had given to him. Not a potential death, a real death. 
on behalf of those that the Father gave to him. If we say that Christ died a potential death for every single person in the entire world, then he died for nobody in particular. His death didn't accomplish anything unless you, the sinner, activate this salvation, which according to the scripture, you're dead in your trespasses and sin by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The thought and the intent of your heart is only evil continuously. What would make a person in that particular condition all of a sudden decide, I want to choose the ultimate good, which is contrary to my sinful nature? It won't happen. As R.C. Sproul said, if it was left up to sinners to come to Christ, none would ever come. But the grace of God, when the grace of God appeared, and the grace of God had penetrated into the hearts of stone by the Holy Spirit of God, he gave us a heart of flesh. He gave us the ability to call upon him in faith. He gave us the privilege of coming to him, even though none of us deserved it. And he did so for no other reason than he chose to do so out of his great love. Dear friends, that's grace. That's grace. I believe it was Wayne uh, when we... We're uh, seeing one, uh, one another a lot there at the gym. A long, it's been a while back. He was either telling me this uh, story from another man or he himself had come up with this. Either way, it was good. He says, which is a more loving God? The one who comes and stands in your yard with a sign saying, choose me, choose me. Or the one who goes to your front door, knocks on the door and says, you're mine and you're coming with me. Which is a more loving God? That's grace. Christ's work is the foundation of extending that grace. As the apostle says in Ephesians, In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, because the Son of God lived the perfect life, and he satisfies the justice of his Father as a substitute. He's the only mediator between God and men, our advocate before the Father, and in whose name there is no other salvation possible. Only in his name may we come. He's the object of our faith, as we will see. Only him. When you're talking about the gospel and you're talking about the content of the gospel, we're talking about Christ, we're talking about who he is, what he's done, and that's why the object of your faith cannot be looking at yourself. The object of your faith is him. The assurance of your faith is not dependent upon how good you're doing. It's all depending upon him because he's the only perfect one. We'll look at a little bit more concerning faith here shortly. But this is what the apostle is bringing about, his divinity, his humanity, what he accomplished. All of this is the sum total of what the gospel is. And this is the message that we give to the unbelieving world. Jesus died for sinners. And you may know the love of God if you place your faith in him. Now this, the, the content of the gospel, of what Paul is bringing about here, he is demonstrating that it is in accordance with the scriptures. And the scriptures that he is referring to is the Old Testament scriptures. We have to remember that the New Testament is still being written here. So what is the Bible that the apostles are carrying around? It's the Old Testament scriptures. And again, we, you know, it's such a common thing within, within the Christian church that you put this big wedge in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, this is all of works and this is all of grace. And it's no, not at all. It was grace in the beginning, it's grace throughout, it's grace now. No one was ever saved in the Old Testament apart from grace. They were saved through faith alone, by grace alone, just as we are saved by faith alone and grace alone. There's no difference. So there's no wedge that needs to be put there. And if we say that all of this was of works, then we're really disregarding a lot of what the New Testament teaches about the law in the Old Testament. By the works of the law, no flesh will be saved. The blood of bulls and goats didn't save anyone, according to the writer of Hebrews. It was foreshadowing what was to come. Their faith was in the one who was to come. 
And if you go back, of course, to um, Abraham, for example, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So these themes are not new, just New Testament themes of what he is going over here. These are realities even from the Old Testament. The identity of the Messiah, who he is, the God-man. This isn't just a New Testament concept. This, of course, was contained in the Old Testament. It was foretold in the Old Testament. I mean, when you think of Psalm 2, for example, one of these great psalms, of the Messiah. What does it say in Psalm 2? We'll just read it. Um, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our Lord is already saying in the, in, in the Old Testament, this is, a, this is a passage that is quoted in the New. You are my son today. I have begotten you. Do homage to the son. Do obeisance to the son. Worship the son. Lest he become angry. When you go to the passage of Isaiah chapter 9. How does it describe the coming one? This is often read, of course, around Christmas time. We see it on cards. What is, he, what is he saying here? In verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this he says a child is born but a son is given there's a difference showing his humanity a child will be born but his his identity being the son A child will be born, but a son is given. And then it describes the son. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, uh, Everlasting, uh, and that's what it means, Eternal Father, Everlasting Father, the Father of Eternity, the Mighty God. This is his identity. This is who the, the, the writer is saying, this is the one who is coming. He's not just any man who is coming. But as he says in chapter 7, when he speaks of the prophecy of the virgin conceiving and bearing his son, his name will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This was established long ago in Micah chapter 5. As you look in that passage, which is often read too, it talks about where he's going to be born, and it said his goings forth are from old, from everlasting. How can that be if he's just a regular man? Well, he's not. And that's the emphasis that the prophets are saying here. He's not just any man. He's the God-man. When you talk about his identity as the son of David, of course, Isaiah chapter 9 that we just read, establishes that reality. Isaiah 11 establishes that reality when you go to the prophecy of Genesis chapter 49 when Jacob is blessing his sons and he talks about with Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes and to him will be the obedience of the nations. This is speaking of the Messiah. This is speaking of him being the great king. Of course, Second Samuel 7 is another one, the greater son than Solomon, all of that. 
These truths are established within the Old Testament. Even justification by faith. These are not new things. There in Isaiah, go to Isaiah 53, which we know very well. In Isaiah 53, we usually read this in reference to Christ as our substitute, the suffering servant. But in verses 10 and 11, especially verse 11, he says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. How how will he justify them? Because he's going to pay their sin debt and he's going to impute his righteousness to them. When you're talking about justification by faith, again, Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In Psalm 32, Psalm 32, which is also quoted in Romans, for the Apostle Paul establishing the truth of justification by faith, it begins... Psalm 32 begins, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If his iniquity is not imputed to him, it was imputed to someone. And if it's not being imputed to him, then something else is being imputed to him. So when we talk about the great exchange, we're talking about Christ being the the sins of his people being imputed to him and him suffering for their iniquities and in turn he imputes his righteousness to them as if they had done it you know when we read later on in Romans chapter 1 that the just will live by faith that's a quotation from Habakkuk Habakkuk chapter 2 but my righteous one will live by his faith justification by faith is established within the Old Testament as well. The gospel going forth to the nations, we already read that in Isaiah 9. But another great passage, we might as well just stay in Isaiah. Maybe that's where we should have started. Isaiah 42, beginning of verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. The gospel going forth to the nations is not a New Testament concept. It was always foretold within the Old Testament. He says to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. These are not new things. And so instead of putting a wedge between them and say, this is something that is old, these things here are new. That is not at all what the scriptures teach us, but showing the continuity between the two. Well, why is this called the Old Testament? This is called the New Testament. Well, the Old Testament, as we want to call it, or as... One theologian who came to lecture to us at the, the seminary, he, does, he, he really doesn't like that. He doesn't like calling it the Old Testament. He says, it's the First Testament. So we can call it that if you like to. The First Testament. All had types and shadows. All was pointing to someone. And so when Christ fully comes on the scene and you have the promise that is given or, or the, the prophecy that is given in Jeremiah 31 of the New Covenant... The new covenant that's going to be made that's not like the one that he made before. Why is it not like the one he made before? Because the the types and shadows are gone. The substance has come. He's finally come. He establishes his covenant in Jeremiah 31. And in my particular view, the same thing is being taught in Daniel chapter 9. The one who establishes the covenant is Christ himself. 
the one who puts an end to the grain offering and the sin offering and all the offerings, all of that that's contained in Daniel 9, was Christ. Because when he gave his life, the veil was torn from top to bottom and he put a stop to the sacrificial system because he was the ultimate sacrifice. Again, the resurrection. When you read in Acts chapter 2 and Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, what text is he using to establish the, resur- the truth of the resurrection? Psalm 16. You could go to Psalm 22 because after all the suffering of the one that's being spoken of in Psalm 22, at the end he's praising the Father. So that means he's alive. When you go to Isaiah 53 and you see all the suffering that he endures, and it says in that text that we read, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. He will see what? He will see his offspring. Meaning again, his people, meaning he's alive. These are not... These are not new things. And so as the apostle is writing to the Romans, he is saying, these things are in accordance with the scriptures. So there's no need to put a wedge. There's no need to to separate the First Testament and the New. It is one story. It is one account of God's grace. There are different aspects of things that happen, you know, in the, in the way that maybe worship was practiced, all of that. But that's it. Well, what about the law? That's a good one. What about the law? We often hear, <clears throat> well, we're not under law. We're under grace. They were under grace, too. So what do we mean by that? Are we meaning that we don't carry out the ceremonial law? Well, sure, we don't carry it out. But is there still a necessity for a temple? For a high priest? For blood atonement? For the sacrifice? Yes, there is. But now the people of God are the temple. Now our high priest, the Lord Jesus, entered entered into the presence of his father, Going through the veil, as the writer of Hebrews says, with his own blood, making one sacrifice for all time. He is our high priest. So the ceremonial law itself was all foreshadowing him. And so now we don't do those things any longer because he was the one that it was pointing to and he accomplished it all. So in that sense, we could say, yeah, we don't, we don't adhere to the ceremonial law. What about the moral law? The moral law, uh, often being defined as the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Well, those are often, or used to be, often posted at uh, courthouses and various other governmental buildings. Do we still adhere to the moral law? Yes, we do. We absolutely do. Okay, so maybe the judicial law is gone. Maybe that's what it is. The judicial law is gone. We don't, we don't do that any longer. Well, let me ask you a question. When you begin to criticize the evils of our day, what passages are you going to to establish that? Well, what about the LGBT movement? Is that contained in the moral law? contained in the judicial law what about rape that's not contained in the moral law that's contained in the judicial law what about moving boundary markers what about cheating in business these things are contained in the judicial law so is that law done away with too no But what we talk about is taking the general equity, the general principle of those laws, which our nation is based upon. If you go and you look at so many of our laws in our own nation, where did they come from? They came from the judicial law of Israel. So we can't say, well, they're under law, we're under grace, because that's not true. What law then do the people of God adhere to when we become believers? Some 
Arbitrary law? Maybe natural law. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe we just emphasize natural law now. Natural law must agree with the written law. So that doesn't give us an answer either. The law by which the citizens of the kingdom conduct themselves is the law revealed in Scripture. So if the law hasn't been done away in the way that we're speaking of, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ, the moral law is still in play, then how then do we still separate the two? This is law, this is grace. That's not true. There's a continuity here. We're moving from the One Testament into the New Testament, and it's all one story of redemption, one account of redemption, and it's all pointing to Christ himself. So everything that Paul says and everything that Paul is establishing throughout this particular epistle is according to the scriptures. There's no disagreement here. This one that the First Testament pointed to, the Lord Jesus, the one that all the New Testament writers are talking about is Christ Jesus himself, who, as he says here, was declared to be the Son of God according to the scriptures. Just as a footnote there, that doesn't mean that he became the Son of God through the resurrection. That's not what that's saying. Uh, One writer says that the apostle doesn't mean that Jesus became the Son of God through the resurrection, but that he who during his earthly ministry was the Son of God in weakness and lowliness became by the resurrection the Son of God in power. Speaking of his exaltation, when the Lord was raised from the dead, according to Philippians 2, he was exalted He received the name above all names, which is Lord. Or as you read in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, that that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Speaking of his exaltation, not that he became the Son of God at his resurrection. That's not that at all. Now, having the sum of the the, the content of the gospel, the sum total of it being Christ and who he is, and it's in accordance with the scriptures that came previously. Now, what is the result of that? What then comes about? What is the fruit of the gospel? What does it accomplish in the life of a believer? He says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Bring about the obedience of faith, meaning the obedience that is based on faith. Faith being belief in the Lord Jesus and all that he did. When you read uh, a number of theologians speak of faith, faith is the instrumental cause of our justification. We believe and the righteousness of Christ is credited and we're declared not guilty. That's our justification. It's a declaration of being not guilty. This obedience that is based upon this faith is not an obedience to receive salvation, but it's an obedience that is because of our salvation, because of our faith. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift by our Lord. It is not something that is brought about within ourselves. When you think of what faith is, faith is the ability to call upon Christ and, 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 and to call upon him, trusting in his, his finished work, who he is, for your hope of salvation. Looking to Christ, who is the ultimate good, as the source of your hope. When we're talking about saving faith, we're talking about having an understanding of the gospel, agreeing to the facts of the gospel, and then committing your life to those, to those facts. And when we're talking about committing your life to those facts of the gospel, it's, in, it's really in essence saying that everything that he did was for me. I believe that. And that's really the essence of saving faith. The object of it? Christ. And that's why the assurance of salvation is all of him. Because we already recognize our shortcomings. We already recognize that God has saved us in spite of ourselves. 
And our, our good deeds in the way in which we live are not going to be the determining factor of whether or not we're justified before God. That's why you cannot look at yourself. You cannot look at how you're doing. Because when we take our eyes off Christ and we begin to look at ourselves, then we begin to ask those questions. Oh Lord, how can I be saved? Look at what I said. Look at what I did. Look at, look at the thoughts that were going through my mind. Oh Lord, am I really saved? And then you have the scriptures that keep emphasizing, look unto Jesus. Behold the Son and believe in Him. And that's why Martin Luther says, when I look at myself, I don't know how I can be saved, but when I look to Christ, I don't know how I can be lost. That's the assurance of salvation is in Him. And having that assurance and being able to call upon Him with that saving faith is a gift of God. It is not brought about through any other means. As John says in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Here's the qualifier. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who were born of God received the gift of faith and called upon Christ, and through calling upon Christ was declared righteous before God, and we're adopted into the family of God. Faith is the gift. And the effect of this saving faith is obedience. And again, when we're talking about obedience, what are we talking about? What are we obeying? We're obeying the commands of our Lord. Did you notice back in that Isaiah 42 passage that as, as he talks about his servant who is coming, a bruised reed, he will not break all of that passage. He's going to establish justice in the earth and the coastlands are waiting for his law. That is a demonstration already that the law was not just for the people of Israel, but it is for all the people of God. And how is righteousness established throughout the earth, but by the people of God, applying the law of God to their very life and how they live. That's how true righteousness and true justice is being established throughout the earth, because when you think about the kingdom of our Lord Jesus, there is no greater kingdom. Because the kingdom of Christ is spread all, all over the globe. And the citizens of the kingdom, as they serve their king, are to serve their king according to his commandments, which are already established within the scripture. And as we pray unto the Lord, we say, O oh Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are, we, what are we saying when we say that? If not, let your justice be established here. And what is the definition of your justice? How do we define that? But by what you have written in your word. That's what we're obeying. We are embracing the law of God and we are putting it into practice as God's people, as citizens of the kingdom. And so this obedience is the fruit of our faith. And not only being the fruit of our faith, but you have these, these phrases here that are said of the people of God. One, that you've been called of Jesus Christ. You have called to be saints. Saints, not in the Roman Catholic term, terminology of that, as they have to you know, come up with a number of things that this person had done in their life. Uh, some miracle has to be attributed to them, etc., etc. Dear friends, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are a holy one. I don't feel like I'm a holy one. I don't feel like I'm a saint because I'm still struggling with this or that. But in the eyes of God, you are a holy one. You are holy unto the Lord. And that's the reality of your position before God. No longer does he see, see you as, as sinful rebels, any of that. 
But now he sees you clothed in the righteousness of his son. And you've been set apart as holy. And so therefore the scriptures are describing you as being saints. As all believers are in a state of holiness before the Lord. Set apart by him. So that when you're reading of the church within the New Testament, you're reading that the temple of God is holy. Or that the priesthood, when he's talking about the priesthood and the holy nation in in 1 Peter, he says, a holy priesthood in verse 5. And then when you get to verse 9, a holy nation. You are holy unto the Lord. You've been called of Jesus Christ by the effectual calling of God. You've been set apart as holy. Seen as holy. And now, as a result of our faith in Christ, as a result of what God has done in setting us apart and declaring us to be holy, now, as the theologian F.F. Bruce says, we put into practice what the calling of God has made us. And that's where our Lord says, Be holy, for I am holy. And the ability to be holy and to live holy is, is enabled by the Spirit of God who dwells within us. By the Spirit of God who changed our hearts and gave us faith to believe. He enables us then to carry out the things that God commands of us. Are we going to do it perfectly? No. Not at all. You will never be perfected in this life. But the great hope that we have is one day you will. I don't pray enough. I don't worship with my whole heart as I should because as we're engaged in worship my mind ends up wandering into something else I don't study enough I don't do acts of charity as often as I should again we don't look to ourselves because Christ prayed enough and Christ honored the Father enough and Christ did enough good things To show the very character of God before an unbelieving world. He did enough. Knowing that we would never be able to live up to that standard. But the things that we are able to do and we keep striving to do. We keep moving forward is because the spirit of God in us. As Augustine had prayed, O Lord, command what thou would and grant what you do command. We have to rely on the Spirit of God throughout all of it to enable us to carry out what God commands and to do so out of a heart that is grateful for what he has done for us in Christ according to what we're reading here. And he ends this particular section with a reminder, as he does often in his epistles, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you who are beloved of God, grace to you and peace. You've received grace. You've received the peace that surpasses all understanding. You are beloved of God. And understand this. When the scriptures describe the love of God to you, how how can we measure that? We can't measure it, but we can at least come up with a, a comparison. When Jesus says to the Father in John 17, You love me before the foundation of the world. That the Son was the object of the Father's love from all eternity. The love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that the Father has for you who are in the Son. So when you talk about the love of God, and you talk about that it has no height nor depth or breadth, All of these things that the Apostle says, you're talking about the same degree of love that the Father has for His Son that is now extended to you. How do you measure that love? You can't. But that's the love that He has for you who are in the Son, beloved of God. This really sets the foundation for the rest of this book. For the gospel and everything that he's going to expound throughout this book. 
And the, the very thing that it should produce within us as we work our way through this is to cultivate in us a greater desire to honor Christ in our life. There are 11 chapters of all kinds of doctrine. All, all kinds of things that he is establishing that God has done in Christ. Then we get to chapter 12. Therefore, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. That's what these truths produce in us. That's what it should produce in us. And is it producing that in you? Are you grateful for the things that we understand of the gospel, of the sum total of the gospel? This is Christ. This is who he is. This is what he accomplished. Does it even affect me? Do I even care? Or do we recognize the, the, the magnitude of what God has accomplished on our behalf and we say, Oh Lord, how may I live before you in a manner that's pleasing to you? How may I glorify you? Does it affect you that, that way? Do you say, Oh Lord, what things are written here that I may carry out and grant to me the ability to carry it out that I can show you my love? I can show you my gratefulness. Do these truths affect you in such a way? Because they should. Sometimes we get so familiar with the gospel that we, 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 lose, we lose that. We don't remember. Yeah, I know what it says, but I'm just not ready to commit myself to that. Well, then how do you identify yourself as a believer? If this does not affect you when we're talking about the gospel and we're talking about God in the flesh who carried out something for you that you didn't deserve, and then we're not really giving it much attention, doesn't really affect us too much, how then do you say that you're a believer? Because what are you saying? I want to live my life how I want to live it at this particular time, maybe later. I pray that it would never, um, it would never cease to affect you. As you talk about it with others, that your heart is filled with joy. That your heart is filled with such delight in God who accomplished so much on your behalf. Dear friends, understand this. Christ did not come and suffer the intense wrath of his Father so that you may continue in sin. He didn't suffer for your sin that you can continue in it, but he suffered for your sin that you would be delivered from it. He didn't just save us and leave us in the darkness, but he has brought us into the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus. That we can have a greater understanding of who he is and to know that we have relationship with him, with the creator of all, and knowing the extent, the, the, the greatness of his love and what Christ has accomplished. Are you moved by those truths? Or does it do nothing? And if it does nothing, either one of two things. Either one, you need to go back and remember your justification as Paul or as Peter says, or two, maybe you need to reevaluate saving faith. Those are the two things that we need to do. It's easy for even a genuine believer to get in a position where you know they're quenching the spirit of God. We know even genuine believers can fall into terrible sin, but only for a season. But as we behold Christ and we behold his glory and his majesty and his greatness, these things cultivate in us that desire to remove ourselves from the, from the, the mire and the clay and to be set back on our path of righteousness. Dear friends, he's done so much for you. Living our life for him now is a very small price in light of what he did. As we work our way through this book, I pray indeed that however long it takes us to go through it, that we will all be greatly changed 
by what we read here by the Spirit of God. If you would, please stand with me, and we will pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your word. Thank you for this portion of your word. As the gospel is established for us, and, and what the gospel has produced in us. Thank you for saving us in spite of ourselves. Father, not one of us here are living the perfect life. We all recognize every day how much we fall short. But thank you that even in light of our failures, through Christ, you see us as holy. And because of him, we are declared not guilty in your sight. Oh, Father, let these truths penetrate our hearts and produce a, an even greater delight in you and a greater desire to honor you in our life. Thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for each person here. And I pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work within our hearts applying this passage to us today. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen.